what we have will be what we do and what we build. And so anything that tells us to like wait on them is not in our interest. And like, this is very hard. We have to have so much grief about this and cannot inspire us to like immediate actions that are not based in illusion of mm -hmm. tech solutions or governments solving it for us. couldn't do any of the work that we do without the support of our patrons. So patrons, thank you from the bottom of our hearts for making this project possible. To support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. As a thank you, becoming a patron gets you access to our second weekly bonus episode and entire back catalog of bonus episodes. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up copies of Health Communism and A Short History of Trans Misogyny at your local bookstore or request them at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. I'm Beatrice Adler-Bolton, and I'm here today with a friend of the panel and fantastic returning guest, Dean Spade. He's joining me to discuss climate, collapse, and the state topics that he wrote about in a great essay that came out in November in In These Times called Climate Disaster is Here and the State Will Never Save Us, which we'll be talking about today. Dean has been working to build queer and trans liberation based in racial and economic justice for decades. You may know him from his work in the early 2000s with the Sylvia Rivera Law Project, from the two books that he's written, both of which each have their own death panel episode. Uh, the first book is Normal Life, Administrative Violence, Critical Trans Politics, and the Limits of the Law, which was published in 2011. And his second book called Mutual Aid, Building Solidarity During This Crisis and the Next was published in 2020. Or you might know him from the documentary that he made about pinkwashing in 2015 or any of the number of many other things that Dean does. He's also a law professor, a longtime activist. The list goes on and I'm probably just embarrassing him. So anyways, you can look Dean up. <laughs> you don't need any more bio from me. Dean, welcome to the death panel. Uh, an honor as always to get to think together. Thank you for having me. And I'm really glad you could join me today to talk about collapse and also ways of thinking about how we relate to the state and what certain theories of power can do to narrow the political horizon and also how that makes us feel. You know, these are all topics that you touch on in this essay that you wrote, um, again, uh, called Climate Disaster is Here and the State Will Never Save Us. It's really interesting. And I think it also offers a really generous jumping off point for talking about how our lives, movements, political resistance are and will continue to be shaped by, as you write, Dean, quote, cascading disasters and the escalating violence that state systems foment in response. And, you know, in your essay, you talk about this need to really start considering and preparing for the effects of worsening ecological crisis and societal collapse in our movements and, you know, working against the kind of toxic nihilistic pessimism that understandably arises out of the very clear and obvious evidence over and over that appeals to people in power and attempts to tinker with the structure of the state or with various aspects of financialization or, you know, the calculus underlying the economic valuation of life are not producing justice, liberation. They're not stopping climate collapse. And ultimately, you know, this points to what for me this essay is really about and why I can't stop thinking about it since I first read it, which is that 
you know, this is thinking through why some of the narrow ways that exist on our political horizon to address the kinds of problems that we're facing from climate to COVID to settler colonialism, you know, appeals to head of state and people in power can make people feel overwhelmed, disempowered, in denial, afraid, avoidant, indifferent, etc. So I want us to start all the way from the top, get into all of the things I just ran through. Dean, can you just sort of talk about why you wanted to write this essay, I guess the kind of context of it, why you wrote it now, and maybe get into what I would say is this kind of incredibly broad relevancy of what you touch on in this essay that I'm, I'm trying to gesture at here, which obviously ties back into a lot of the themes that we've talked together on the show in the past, either relative to like the mythology of the benevolent caring state who's coming to save us, the indirect nature of policy work itself, structurally speaking, versus the kind of direct nature of things like mutual aid, autonomy, sovereignty, state and administrative violence. There are just so many threads to pick up in this essay. So, you know, both in the stated text and also just like sort of unstated building off of it. So I'm sort of curious what the central threads were for you when you were writing this piece, Dean. Yeah, I mean, you know, I am in my own process of dealing with my denial around the state of things like mm-hmm. that. I mean, in some ways, all all my entire political life is that, right? You spend your entire life being like just learning deeper and deeper, like, oh my God, like just spending your entire life trying to comprehend the violence of colonialism and learning about more and more and more and more elements and sites and dimensions to how it's living now and things that have happened to people in context or, you know, trying to comprehend what racial capitalism is your whole life, you know, so all of us who are in these struggles are constantly coping with extracting liberalism from our mentalities, which is, you know, never going to be finished or extracting white supremacy from our mentalities or, you know, any of the patriarchy. But I think in particular, as I, in the last few years, have more and more looked at these questions of ecological crisis deeply. And I think I want to name that I I became political during a time where a lot of the struggles I was in didn't look at ecological crisis because Mm -hmm. um, ecological work was a lot of like white-led conservation work. It's been so much effort for frameworks that can um, that can really think about racial capitalism as the cause of ecological crisis, and then for like local community work that centers people of color and indigenous people to be you know to to mend back what the problems that a white like a white led you know sort of eco movement created in in siloing um, our movements, our social justice movements, so that like lots of people doing like feminist and anti-police and prison work, et cetera, weren't also doing or seeing the connections with um, ecological work because that work was like sort of coded as this like white conservation work. So I'm a product of that. And many years of my work insufficiently theorized and integrated, you know, work about ecological crisis. So that, you know, I will say that was, that's kind of what I'm recovering from. And I'm also just recovering from a general culture of denialism. Like, I think we think, you know, right-wingers like deny climate change, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how even people who know climate change is real don't let ourselves know and are denied information that would show us like how urgent the current um, context of ecological crisis, not just climate change, but all these other elements of ecological crisis that are happening, all the problems happening with air, water, food systems, I mean, everything um, that are not just the climate piece. And so I'm in my own process of that. And I... I think I wrote this piece in part because, um, I mean, you know, as, as you know, the piece kind of hangs on kind of reviewing a couple of cli-fi books. And part of what I notice and what I'm curious about is the storytelling in our culture about this, both the storytelling in the news headlines and the storytelling in like, you know, speculative fiction and how 
how the denial is fed by a couple of things, by like one, the, the ways in which we're all taught to be pacified, we're like someone else is going to deal with this, you know, um, AOC and Bernie are going to deal with this through the Green New Deal, or this is so big, I couldn't possibly do anything about it. So I, I'm hoping that these big nonprofits and politicians will deal with this. Or the other side of it is like, I think liberalism is like, you know, kind of a cult of opt- false optimism. It's like, we're supposed to believe things are getting better. There's progress narratives. There's experts who are going to work things out for us. These systems ultimately deliver justice if we just wait long enough and deliver the right kinds of, you know, input into them. And so there's a type of like relying on like, oh, there's a headline that something, there's like a new tech solution that's going to be delivered that's going to clean the oceans. Or there's a um, like one good thing happens somewhere and that gets reported on by a nonprofit or by a news source. And there's a kind of, I think, like pattern of I just need to feel better because I think most people actually feel like a deep sense of, you know, underlying overwhelm about conditions in the world in general, genocide, colonialism, ecological collapse. And feel quite disempowered because it is really scary that we live under these giant systems that keep producing this and, you know, we can't seem to stop them. Like, that's like legitimately terrifying. Um, And so there's a kind of, dear God, just let me feel better um, that I think we don't even maybe always know we're emotionally doing where we're just like, oh, a little piece of good news over here, a little piece of good news over there. And part of what also led me to write this was that I have tried to talk to a lot of my beloved friends who are all political radicals. And a lot of people are just like, I don't want to talk about this, Dean. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You're the person who's my whole life been like forcing people to talk about political conditions that they don't want to hear about. Right. That's what one of the things our movements do um, Mm -hmm. is like, look, look what's happening in our prisons. Look what's, you know, like, it's like, we are like, we, we are refused to be, to have conditions of violence um, that are urgent matters in our lives silenced. And, and I see people be like literally telling me, like, don't talk to me about this. Um, of course, of course, because I'm wanting to talk to my friends about this because I'm, you know, like, how do we how do I emotionally navigate this? What does this mean for our immediate strategies? Are are we going down the wrong paths in any of the movement work we're doing together? Because if we think about this, how does it change things? And so seeing that and that, I don't feel judgment towards those people. I just felt like, you know, loneliness and a desire to connect about this and a concern like, wow, that's so unlike you. And it just it told me something about what this denialism is like and how it's moving amongst us. And it's the kind of thing where like, if you believe in climate change at all, you're ahead of the right wing or something. And so then that's, that's enough non-denialism. And I'm like, oh no, no, we need like a lot, lot, lot more examination of our denialism because it has consequences in our lives. Like we, you know, we need to prepare. I mean, not that there is any like, you know, easy, simple way to do that. But I definitely think as with all things, like the more we look at what's happening and, and, try to comprehend what what is quite incomprehensible, but try to, the more we might make different immediate decisions about what the right actions are to support, you know, hopefully like some reduction in suffering or some, you know, loving care of our communities, of our people, of the earth. And so, so all of that um, Mm -hmm. generated this piece and, and, you know, the, um, that especially though, as you were sort of hinting at that, the feeling that this is an area where people are like, this is so big and overwhelming. It could only be solved by governments and and, and tech. And so mm-hmm. it really has kind of nothing to do with me or I can't do anything about it. That message is so immensely harmful and it is pervasive. And I think a lot of people believe in it. Like I've even had conversations with people over the years after a big, you know, like big hurricane happens or a fire where people are like, yeah, this is evidence that we need the state. And that, you know, like, this is the only people who could respond to this. And I'm just like, but wait, like, they don't respond to these disasters at all. They they bring in militaries, they shoot people, they show up too little too late. FEMA offers people loans, not like, you know, actual things mm-hmm. that they need, like houses. And also the state and the arrangements of racial capitalism that it cultivates 
are what are causing all these problems. Like nobody would be living in a flood zones. There wouldn't be, you know, um, this level of pollution. Like, all, like it's like the idea that 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 system will be what regulates us out of it or what saves us when it is literally the exact thing producing and has, that it has produced. The harm feels like a wild contradiction, but I think it's there's an, a big emotional piece underlying this of just like, oh my God, somebody save us. I'm so overwhelmed. I, I know I personally can't stop what's happening. Like, and a kind of, um, you know, and we live in times where social movements are immensely, immensely suppressed and have been for many, many, many decades. So it's hard for people to believe, I think, in a deep way that collective action could get us out of anything because we live in severe anti-revolutionary times in which people, you know, are um, that kind of action is very, very, very um, underdeveloped and quite, um, you know, criminalized and suppressed for a long time. And so it's just like rough, you know, it's like a really, mm. really rough um, formula. Mm, absolutely. And so well put. I mean, I think to speak to why I felt like this was such an important thing to talk about. I mean, this is like a very uh, like a very clear analogy here, right, is COVID or Palestine, right? If we simply uh, proceed pretending like COVID is not happening, the political reality that we're going to be sort of planning for and organizing for in our movements is going to be insufficient, right? And this is what the argument that so many people who are organizing around COVID right now are, are really trying to desperately make, like, even just within the left, trying to push the left to just consider these things in, you know, planning gatherings, getting groups of people together, right? The impact that COVID can have on not just your health, but putting you into financial and housing precarity, missed work, things like that, the ways that sickness is sort of punished in society. And then if we're sort of speaking to these larger, um, you know, quote unquote, international relations issues, right, where it's like the situation, quote unquote, is so big, right, that this is something that is designated at the level of heads of state, right, at the state apparatus. It's something that people are basically encouraged to not recognize their own sort of expertise and opinions of, about these things, right? To sort of trust in the state as this larger decision-making body that is the appropriate realm for these kinds of big problems, right? And I think what you really kind of getting at it, this piece is that, you know, to use the words of Clee Benelli, I'm thinking of his book, No Spiritual Surrender, that we had read together and have been discussing recently. But, you know, he talks about in his chapter called Toward the Colonial Nothing, Settler Destruction is Ceremony, he talks about the pathologization of quote-unquote antisocial behavior, right, as being a kind of lack of motivation or social factors or something, a lack of desire for success. But he says it's, you know, more a reaction to the frantically transparent and absolutely farcical illusory promise of change at the level that we're told it's supposed to happen, right? Like that the yeah. idea... You know, the say he says, you know, this the saying goes like the system isn't broken, it was made this way, so why bother? Quote, it's painfully apparent when someone is selling you a brand of hope that is a lie, they tell themselves to maintain the appearances of social order, of a job they hate, of a life filled with a collection of regrets. And it's from this really powerful section where he's talking about, you know, what really is nihilism and what really is apathy, right? In in a sort of broader colonial and, and settler state, like how can these concepts exist uh, relative to the kinds of normative behaviors that are demanded of citizenship, right? Of being a member of the body politic, which Clee's arguing is essentially being conscripted into the process of reproducing the state, right? And you're kind of getting at something similar here, which is that 
the kind of realm of solution, right? The, the, the arena in which we are told these problems that we care about, right, are meant to be solved in, in and of itself is productive of these bad feelings. It's not the circumstances. It's not, you know, facing reality that makes people sad or depressed or apathetic to action or, you know, move towards denial. It's the kind of political landscape that it's all happening on, right? Like it's this much broader context than just simply like that the information itself is depressing. And and that's part of what you're getting at is that 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 kind of desire to look away is the kind of thing that is really important in terms of to sort of work against that desire to look away from from things that essentially are sort of showing us these obvious points, you know, we can really learn from, right? Like if, for example, if it feels really bad, you know, to suppress the awareness that you're sort of up against systems that are creating something that you're trying to change. And the only option that you're given is to tinker at the system, which is producing the problem itself, right? That is disempowering. It's overwhelming. You know, that in and of itself, not the problem, is the thing that makes you fucking feel bad and that makes it feel pointless and worthless, right? And that that ultimately is sort of part of the state's power in and of itself and part of how through controlling where change is supposed to happen, where politics are supposed to happen and who's supposed to be at the table, right? That's a very powerful way of sort of controlling what political reality can be that's much more powerful than any kind of like policy, law, speech, or single election. It's really truly like where power comes from is in setting what's appropriate and possible to be put on the agenda. Yeah. I mean, what you said to where you started with COVID, it's like, it's been so, so, so awful. People experienced, you know, extreme forms of isolation, loss of community. It's like, I, you know, I have a, I have a, when I think of people I know who are, who are really using what they've learned during the COVID experience to try to prepare. Like I have a friend who, who is in a group of sick and disabled people who are like, we've all become so extremely isolated as um, people stopped masking and stopped in any way caring for one another around COVID. And so they are like, do we want to try to live all in the same place so that we get to have a community, so a chance of not being alone? Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of people I talk to are just like, totally unwilling to entertain the possibility that, that another pandemic is coming. And it's like, of course, we should, even while we mourn and deal with all the ways COVID is affecting us now and has affected us over the last years, not put aside the possibility that another pandemic is coming because it might help us prepare. Like if, you know what I mean? Right. Like in that, I feel like that's, um, it's instead just like, oh my God, I, everyone, we're, like we're just trying to deal with COVID or people who believe COVID's over, which I do not believe, obviously, you know, oh, just, just trying to like, be like, well, we got through that. If, you know, for those who think so, you know, it's like, no, obviously the right thing to do would be to be like, what did we learn about what we need to have in place and what we need in our lives or what we, we wish we'd known before, you know, like, what does it mean to use all of the current tragedies to prepare instead of just um, denying it? Be, but people feel like, don't even say that to me. Like, let me plug my ears. And I understand that emotionally, <laughs> but I think that that's really hard. And and also COVID showed us how fragile, for example, the supply chain is. Things are very collapsy with the systems we live under, which we entirely depend on. Very few people can, can say they don't for building supplies, for food, for medicines. Those systems that are literally keeping me alive are more globalized than they ever were in my life, you know? So like prior people who've lived, you know, and you read, there's lots of books about prior collapses and stuff and then prior empires that have crumbled. None of them 
hung their livelihoods in the ways we do on this wildly patched together, incredibly exploited of the planet and people system that just is really, really teetering, you know, and has been for quite a while. And, and COVID gave people images of that. And of course, there are much worse pandemics that could come or other disasters related to ecological crisis. And so the fear to look at it really, it's like, I, you know, there's this kind of humility, I think, in facing this stuff where you're like, oh, okay. It's not the fantasy that like something is going to fix it all. Like there's going to be some tech that's going to come fix it all, or there's going to be some legislation that's going to fix it all. Like none of that is going to happen. Like there's like all of the tech stuff is actually making things worse. <laughs> um, the tech solution's not coming. The governmental solution, like why would governments that have organized to sharpen and sharpen and sharpen wealth maldistribution and have in every way supported polluting industry, supported, you know, wars and genocidal tactics that destroy the planet and, and poison us all, why would they turn on a dime? Like, it's not like they don't have evidence of what it's doing. Like, there's no, and I don't know, I think I maybe mentioned this to you in a different conversation we had. I really, really, you know, admire and love the work of um, Naomi Klein and Molly Crabapple both. But I recently rewatched the two movies, these two animated movies that they made several years back because mm -hmm. um, I heard a speech from Naomi where she mentioned them. And I was like, you know, curious what they were. And they, I think they like evidence this kind of typical problem from people who I like love and admire and think of a lot of wonderful political contributions and from whom I learn where they show a story. They're both, I'll try to remember the names of them, but they both show a story um, of like kind of a good future. Like one of them is like AOC is riding a bullet train. Maybe she's president or something. I can't remember, you know, she's riding a bullet train between DC and New York. And like, we're kind of living in a future in which some tech solutions have happened and the green new deal has happened. The second one shows like more of like the years of repair. And it's like, people are being released from prisons and there's all these big protests happening about rent. And like, this leads to basically a new world in which everybody gets to have jobs repairing the earth and, it just, there's no political analysis about why that would lead to that. Like people have been in the streets against capitalism for hundreds of years, like in huge numbers. People have risked everything to fight back in using every tactic you can imagine, insider and outsider. And just the idea that that will just like lead to um, governments like getting the right idea that it's a matter of moral persuasion maybe is like the kind of implied, the implied thing under these messages and I just, I feel like people on some level like know, wow, wow, that's really not working. Like even if the Green New Deal, while really inadequate and really like something that preserves capitalism, even that, which wouldn't help us enough, is nowhere near passing. Like it's very humbling. It's like, oh, actually what I have in front of me is that some of these systems are just going to actually fall apart. The governments are going to respond with militarism because that's what they do. They're going to like police people. They're going to like hurt climate refugees more just as they already do. That's what the U.S. border does now. You know, they're not going to be aimed towards care because that's not what they're aimed towards. And what we have will be what we do and what we build. And so anything that tells us to like wait on them is not in our interest. And like, this is very hard. We have to have so much grief about this. Like people are already dying of this all the time and more, many, many more will. And like, can that inspire us to like immediate actions that are not based in illusion of mm -hmm. tech solutions or governments solving it for us? And this is just like, in some ways, it's like an old story, right? Like we all know, like people go to City Hall again and again, and they realize, oh my God, it's never going to happen there. We have to just physically stop the bulldozers from destroying the forest or whatever. You know, like people, this is a common story across all social movements, but it also seems like liberalism is so durable. Like it makes us all 
do that rigmarole again and again. <laughs> and you always want to just say to people who are currently doing it, like, hey, a million people have already proven that won't work. And then still, you know, moral persuasion is not the way to transform these systems. Like, it's not that the people in power don't know they're hurting us, you know, or don't, you know, or if they don't know and they find out, they'll be fired from those jobs of being people in power and they'll replace them with somebody who doesn't mind continuing the the thing. But that that process is... Um, is so painful. And in, you know, in this, in this essay, I'm talking a bit about these books I read that even though they have pretty deep critiques of the reasons why like governments and industry got us where we are today, they still both at their endings have governments turn on a dime and do the right thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> one more worse than the other one. And I'm just, and I see this a lot in this realm of like people trying to speculate about the future. Like just like it must be that at some point the governments will save us from ecological crisis and collapse. And why would we think that? Mm-hmm. Just uh, again, to bring it back to COVID, I think that there's a very important point embedded in what you've just been saying, which is that one of the biggest sort of causes for despair and dismay about the refusal to acknowledge the reality of the impact that COVID as an ongoing phenomena has, but also in how it's been made worse by its invisibilization, right? By the kind of suppression of it as something that matters, that affects life, that's important, right? Like in that, right, it has produced additional knock-on effects. And you sort of talk about how these, the coming disaster is like an intensification of the familiar in the essay. Mm -hmm. And this is a great example of that, right? Where it's like COVID, as we understood it, March 2020 through, let's say, like, February 2021 existed with one level of sort of understanding, one sort of understanding of site of struggle, right? We had um, the kind of horizon what that we were being told to expect was uh, vaccines are coming, right? That we're, we're putting all this technology into the vaccines. And then what we saw is that the U.S. government really sold the message of a vaccine-only strategy without the data to back that up, let it rip. And what we've seen is, you know, Nearly 2 million people killed in the span of four years. Proportionally, deaths have been concentrated in people who are older, people of color, in disabled people, right? And you also now have, like, as we move forward, this intense effort to suppress anyone who is still taking COVID precautions from a social, political, and economic um, angle, right? You have people who are losing their entire friend groups, who are the only one in their life still masking, who are losing their job, who are forced to unmask in order to retain their job, right? Uh, who are in living situations where they're, the people they live with have completely different frameworks of dealing with COVID, right? And the, and so it's, uh, it's really important to sort of understand why there's such a reaction right now towards shutting down actually wrestling with COVID, right? And part of that is the possibility of the oncoming layered additional health crises, whether that's from something that um, is a quote unquote natural disaster, like a the fire last summer that produced, you know, heavy air quality conditions, smoke for weeks, right? Or, you know, an actual additional other pandemic, right? Or a worsening of an epidemic or any of the kind of like things that has happened as a result of supply chain disruptions with medication or disruptions in access to care, right? And so you have this kind of reaction, especially from conservatives of like, okay, well, we have to shut this down now, foreclose on political possibility. We have to atomize and distribute these sites of struggle. And we have to also discourage solidarity because all of these things, right, would presuppose reacting 
to whatever comes next and not reacting to that is the goal not only of shutting down COVID and no longer reacting to COVID, but is a sort of preemptive shutting down against, as you're saying, sort of like what could be coming, right? And trying to actually anticipate from that. And that makes sense because if you think about the kind of think pieces and the op-eds that started coming as the vaccine got closer, particularly in fall of 2020, when you saw the Great Barrington Declaration emerge, right, in October of 2020, that comes after a couple weeks of, you know, starting in August 2020, people start writing think pieces about how COVID's going to prepare us for the next pandemic and already started mm. talking about COVID being over before the vaccines were even releasing interim data, right? And so you have this kind of clear reaction and, um, you know, I hate the term backlash because I think it naturalizes this kind of reaction as like an emotional one or a psychological one and, and sort of takes it out of the realm of political economy. But it is like a rubber band snapping back, right? And you have an overcorrection. And what you had was, you know, suppression and oppression and subjection as a result of the possibility that COVID could create any lasting disruption to balances of power in society, particularly when it came to to workers, right? And what we saw really quickly was like, who was an essential worker changed? Um, what essential workers were expected to put up with changed, right? And the sort of framework ultimately that we're up against now is not just one that denies COVID, but that denies the possibility of anything else also, right? Of, of really just sort of tries to shut down COVID in a way that preemptively shuts down against sort of other things. And so, you know, it's it's not surprising that when you have, you know, so much of like the elite realms of knowledge production and, and people in government and government policies, when all of these things sort of coalesce to apply as much pressure as possible to reset these pathways of extraction, it becomes really clear that in many ways, the systems that were expected to push on and poke at in order to achieve change, right, so to speak, that those are the very systems that not only created the crisis, but that also are really kind of there to facilitate extraction, to facilitate markets, to manage markets, right, to surveil, to police, um, to suppress, not to facilitate change, right, not to facilitate democratic influence on policy and on the actions of government. But that is the story we tell ourselves. And that is the story we are told is how you're a good member of society and sort of engage in good, respectable politics, right? It's like the kind of constant refrain of, you know, don't protest outside of people's houses. You know, you don't bother people, don't violence, right? Like that there is this kind of like prescribed way of engaging with these things, right? And in that prescription, it becomes really clear just sort of how futile it, it can be, right? And ultimately, what you're asking people to consider is really, you know, not just this landscape of sort of crisis and collapse that we're talking about, right? And the many sort of biopolitical angles to that, but also really kind of like why it's worth really kind of considering different arenas of struggle, right? What's the difference between working within the state or working against it? And how does each of those sort of positions relate to the sort of scale and scope of crisis that we're in collapse that we're really talking about, which is something that, again, is a kind of open question for so many people as to why it continues, that even just like the sort of obviousness of extraction and brutality 
why calling attention to that or raising awareness about that or sort of pushing people in power over those points doesn't actually result in anything ceasing, right? Why it continues despite the analysis, investigation, the measuring, the study, right? Why will, you know, it's there's that great uh, Essex Hemphill poem, um, and Essex, who died of AIDS, is like, writing, I don't want to wait for like a Heritage Foundation study that says black men are extinct. Like we have to fucking Mm -hmm. act. Right. And I think that that is really the kind of thing that you're trying to push people towards here is really sitting with that question, sitting with with everyone's um, embodied expertise and to really kind of think deeply about what you're being asked to do in terms of your resistance and does complying with the state's requested sort of framework of resistance, right, produce the results that you want? Why or why not? Yeah, I mean, so many things you said. I'm thinking about how, for me, living through the beginning of the war in Iraq, was a sharpening, a next level sharpening for me in my experience of like, oh, the government does not care at all what we think. They're going to make this war, even if more people are out protesting it than have ever protested anything in the history of the planet. This war, like, I don't live in a democracy. We, this is not, you know, and I think a lot of people are having that experience for the first time right now about genocide in Gaza. Like, it doesn't matter that the entire world knows what this is. And it doesn't matter that people in the United States don't want this the United States is going to make this happen and mm-hmm. is going to stake him and just, and that's true in a million ways in our own localities. We don't want cops, but all the money goes to the cops. We want, you know, all the things people want and need for their lives. It's just that realization I think is like actually incredibly profound and it can be people I think have brief awakening moments around it, but then also, you know, fall back into hoping that there's a legal system that will deal with this or a legislative system when it's like, it's a war. They are going to take as absolutely fucking much as they can from everybody for as long as they can. And like when it gets hard, like at the height of, you know, a certain moment of COVID, they'll kick down like two tiny checks. You know what I mean? Like they will give as little as possible to sustain, to regulate and sustain the extractive systems. And it's it's a war. I was thinking when you were talking to about this guy, Francis Weller, he wrote a book called uh, Wild Edge of Sorrow about grief and how grief is so um, taboo in our culture. And he says that we live in a culture of amnesia and anesthesia. And I think about that all the time because it's like, it's so hard to know what we know. And and I see that with like the way that like, um, that like, you know, climate-based disasters are covered. It's like, there's this outrageous fire happening in Hawaii and then you never hear about it again, even mm-hmm. though people there are dealing with the effects of that for years and decades to come or each hurricane, right? Like it's like whole areas are destroyed, but you, it's only in the news for like a week, you know? And like how we just forget it even happened and that both helps us fail to understand the connections between all those things. And that I I really feel how that prevents people from getting chances to ask each other, like, what is the immediate, humble, practical action we want to take together here right now? You know, and I, and I think you know, we've talked about this together, but I think this is why over the years, even though this isn't kind of how I started thinking of myself, I've increasingly been drawn to anarchist thought and anarchist writing about um, and, you know, and, and ideas about direct action and mutual aid, like those tactics weren't new to me. I learned those in, in other struggles. But to me, what I'm thinking about it as anarchism or thinking about it as an anti-state politics brings together is it's like we're moving from what I think a lot of people are holding 
consciously or unconsciously is like a utopic fantasy that there will be a system wide change and that our people, somebody good will take over the whole system and run it in a better way, as opposed to that, you know, I would say like the systems are like, as you mentioned, like working exactly as designed. And so there isn't like a way to like use a system that has militaries and borders and police in a way that is for the life of earth instead of like anti that, but that, that fantasy, that's like the deeply not humble, right? It's a fantasy of total takeover, total control, the rolling out of a new utopia. And a lot of what you and I and other friends have been talking about is like, if we move away from that utopia and instead start like what is happening right now in people's lives right around us and what can we reasonably anticipate at, you know this thing about the 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 collapse and the disaster isn't like the zombie apocalypse we see in movies it is just an intensification of of exactly what's happening right now um like it's just there's just more and more surveillance technology and there's more and more political repression. Well, yeah, it certainly feels like that's happening. And there's more and more danger to the food system as climate changes. And there's more and more, you know, smoke and fire and hurricane disasters. And there's more, like, it's just, we're in the water and the water is getting hotter and hotter. And so what do we do immediately here instead of imagining like a sudden total about face, mm-hmm. um, which I just don't, I that, that doesn't, I see no evidence that that's about to happen. And even, you know, and that's really hard. Like even the the uprising of 2020, which was like really like, you know, you can't know that those moments are going to happen. It was like, wow, like so many people are taking bold risks together and like sharing incredible analysis and attacking the infrastructure of carceral violence. And, you know, the, our opponents like got on their feet pretty fast afterwards. Like they didn't do any defunding of the police. Like they, they got rid of the, the local politicians who were questioning it. And they, uh, you know, in most places, the carceral system is alive and well. And in places like where I live in Seattle, we have like a more carceral city government now than we had at that time. And we're, they're like launching like a new elements of the drug war. Like it's like wildly retrograde, you know? And so the back, we're living in the backlash or, you know, the counterinsurgency full force. And we didn't get as much mileage of like transformative change as we might've hoped out of that moment, even though people took such beautiful, beautiful, bold risks. It's like, it's not gonna like be a revolutionary moment where everything suddenly changes. Like the best things that came out of that time are that people like met each other and did a bunch of mutual aid work together and like are doing a lot of very like humble, intense local support to one another and the people in the jails and prisons around them. And you know, like that that kind of work is the best stuff that came out of that, not some new thing in which we had like a million elections of abolitionists to high office and they took over their states. Like that's that I think that's some people's fantasy. And I think it's more and more obvious to me that the system is is um is is designed to make sure that doesn't happen and that it's that it's you know it's the 11th hour, like we have to turn to what is actually happening now and be like, can we help our neighbors store water? Mm-hmm. You know, can we like just what's real down here on the ground and not kind of in a fantasy of a total revolution that's just like in which suddenly we we, we make the state apparatus do what it has never done and was not designed to do. Right. And I, I think one of the things that's important to just say is like the point is for like a proliferation of things to be happening too. You know, it's yeah. sometimes I think when we get into the discussion of the state and what it is and what it could be or should be or shouldn't be, right? People tend to sort of um, like gravitate towards like a who's right and who's wrong moment. And in particular, you know, we walk a kind of fine line around that debate on this show because we're not interested in having that fucking conversation. We're interested in what 
can we do in a sort of grand total way, right? Like, what are all the different ways that we can sort of be thinking about this instead of siloing ourselves into one particular proper kind of approved method? And I think one of the things that is really important and interesting to think about, and I really I want to credit Rasha Abdulhadi here, who, you know, they and I were talking October 16th, you know, people, I think in many ways, were like not really ready almost uh, to comprehend like what Rasha was bringing to them and offering in, in that conversation. And it's been really awesome to watch like the impact of that grow, right? And and really shift the way that some people are thinking and talking about Gaza and Palestine. But one of the things that Rasha says in that, in a really, not in a critical way, like in a very, um, I think, supportive and, and again, like compassionate way, Rasha's like, don't just repeat political slogans, right? Like people sometimes repeat things like uh, healthcare is a human right, right? Without necessarily like fully engaging with like, what are you saying, right? <laughs> when you're when you're sort of advocating for these things. And part of that is, again, just sort of that there is a, a, a mode, right, of sort of prescribed and preferred political speech and engagement. Part of what's kind of deceptive, right, is that the state itself, conceptually speaking, is something that's actually pretty amorphous and intentionally goes unstated, right? And so there's this kind of assumption that everyone is on the same page. But there are actually many, many different ways to think about what a state is or explain what the state is or what the state does or what the state could be that are often conflicting or, you know, completely in disagreement. You know, there's like the liberal theory of the state where the state is the collective will of the people. Um, you have the <laughs> the idea of the benevolent state or the state as a monopoly on direct violence, right? But I think a really helpful read on what the state is that I wanted to bring in in case it's helpful to anyone, but I do think it is helpful to sit down and sort of talk about like, well, what are we even talking about working within or against, right? And I think a really helpful read on this comes from political science, actually, from Phil's field. And there's an article in a really important journal article in the early 1990s by a guy named Timothy Mitchell that talks about the difficulty in defining the state as its kind of key conceptual point of entry. And rather than trying to pin down exactly what the state is with a kind of sharper and sharper definition... Mitchell basically says that like the difficulty in nailing down one definition of the state is a clue as to the state's true nature. And Mitchell's in some ways like building on Foucault here, thinking about the state's disciplinary function and power from an anti-state perspective, though he's also engaging directly with statist arguments about what the state is. And he, he builds on these status claims as to what the state is, pointing to the fact that many liberal conceptualizations of the state rely essentially on conflation, abstraction, um, a misrepresentation of scientific accuracy. And Mitchell talks about how the kind of vague and complex thing that we're analyzing called the state gets boiled down to this thing called policy by its supporters. They say basically, you know, that policy refers to what state officials want, certain state officials want. And suddenly the state becomes this sort of abstract concept portrayed as a national interest, right? Um, as a kind of repository for national interest. And it's looked at not just as a kind of rhetorical trick, but as something that, that liberals genuinely sort of believe in and follow as a dogma. And the conflation of state with policy and with state officials and with theories and styles and tactics of governance is a kind of classic magic trick that basically helps to prop up and project the mirage of so-called national interest, right? And Mitchell wrote, quote, um, 
The elusiveness of the state society boundary needs to be taken seriously, not as a problem of conceptual precision, but as a clue to the nature of the phenomenon. Rather than searching for a definition that will fix the boundary, we need to examine the detailed political processes through which the uncertain yet powerful distinction between state and society is produced. The distinction must be taken not as the boundary between two discrete entities, but as a line drawn internally within the network of institutional mechanisms through which a social and political order is maintained. The ability to have an internal distinction appear as though it were an external boundary between the separate objects is the distinctive technique of the modern political order. And, you know, what's really what he's saying is like what's really crucial in modern society, right, is that even though the state isn't a fixed entity with uh, a kind of inherent essence, it still comes across as if it is, is a material object, right? And this perception affects various governmental practices that reference, invoke, and legitimize themselves in relation to it. And the state, whether seen as like an actual object or not, has very tangible real-world effects because it's referred to, invoked, fought over, and struggled against, right? And so through these struggles, practices, and discourses, the state is shaped into an entity that has really real material impacts. And concrete actions make the state a tangible concept, just as the state remains like the lens through which we perceive and comprehend and challenge political power, you know, that in and of itself is sort of how the state is made. But at the same time, the state isn't just made up of talk, plans, and logic. Um, it's also made through real actions, various routines, right? Laws, routine. Uh, and even though we understand that the state itself isn't a tangible thing, we rely on references to it and to its authority in nearly every aspect of our daily lives, right? We depend on roads and infrastructure. We need state-approved certifications for various professions, whether that's teaching, medicine, law, being a dentist, being um, disabled, you know, this, there's these official sort of regimes of biocertification also in terms of identity. But, you know, so many aspects of our lives basically require the state's approval or it's lack of explicit disapproval, which is an important way to think about state-level attacks on trans life, which leverage the law to sort of make a narrowly held implicit disapproval explicit and official. But in our day-to-day -day activities, you know, we behave as though the state is an unquestionable entity capable of granting permission and ensuring things like safety, law enforcement. And every time that we act like the state is this kind of unified entity, we essentially affirm the existence of the state and its power. We maintain, we create, we reinforce the notion of the state as if it were a given sort of solid reality, even though it might not technically exist, right? And so even if it's intangible, what matters is that it still has tangible effects. And even if the state lacks a kind of concrete definition that everyone can agree on, its metaphysical existence is still really important for enforcing functional power of government actors and for legitimizing governmental actions of any kind. So it's essentially not freestanding from society or the economy, but it's not separate either. And part of what it relies on is this kind of like separation and enforcing and sort of managing the boundaries between what we perceive of as state and what we perceive of as society, right? And so that's why Michel basically says, you know, perhaps the state is actually best explained as a structural effect. He says, quote, the state should be addressed as an effect of detailed processes of spatial organization, temporal arrangement, functional specification, and supervision and surveillance, which create the appearance of a world 
fundamentally divided into state and society. The essence of modern politics is not policies formed on one side of this division being applied or shaped by the other, but the producing and reproducing of this line of difference. These processes create the effect of the state not only as an entity set apart from society, but as a distinct dimension of structure, framework, codification, planning, and intentionality. The state appears as an abstraction in relation to the concreteness of the social and as a subjective ideality in relation to the objectness of the material world. The distinctions between abstract and concrete, ideal and material, subjective and objective, which most political theorizing is built upon, are themselves partially constructed in those mundane social processes that we recognize and name as the state, right? So in simpler terms, the idea is that when we talk about the state, we're not just talking about a specific group of people in power or certain laws or policies themselves. We're talking about how society is organized, how time is managed, what priorities are, how things are structured, how they're watched over, how they're controlled, right? And all of these things make it seem like there's this clear separation between the state and society. And the main point here isn't that, you know, politics is just about policies made by one group and applied to another. It's about, you know, constantly creating and maintaining this divide between what we call the state and everything else, which means that the state is something that is not fixed, right? But it requires constant creation and recreation. And this makes the state seem like it's permanent. And again, it's also how this kind of mythology of national interest is constructed. And so you both have the kind of like, permanence and the pretend representation or participation, a feeling of being a part of the national interest, a part of the body politic, a part of the we, right? That justifies and perpetuates techniques of power like extractive governance, capitalist governance, racial capitalism, imperialist settler colonial governance, which then shapes the rules or guides by which all actors and institutions in that state operate by naturalizing it as just the way our society is, right? And part of that is enforced through this kind of separation of like there being something separate between the state and, and society, which ultimately is part of the state's power. I love, I love how you put those together. I, I also didn't, I, I love looking at that article. I love the, the quotes you pulled out. Um, I mean, one thing is I feel like also underlying this and that I want to just encourage listeners if they haven't already dug into, you know, of course that the state is like, a totally new technology in, mm -hmm. of organizing humans. And it's really been around very, very briefly. And also the one, the the versions of it we live in now are like super new. Like it's totally really new to have like militarized borders like this. And it's really, really new to keep this many people in cages. And it's really new to have uh, militaries of these sizes and to have this level of um, surveillance in our daily lives. And so even like just the studying, like how it has expanded its creep and like, um, and then, and then learning about the fact that people didn't organize themselves like this for most of human history. And that when people look back on prior periods in human history, they statify them. And that's why I've really been enjoying, mm. um, and maybe other people have the, the, the newish book, Dawn of Everything um, by David Graeber and David Winrow. Um, highly recommend this book because it's all about looking at like, you know, very old ancient times and how, um, archaeologists and anthropologists narrate finding, you know, um, important graves and important sites and settlements and how those have been inter misinterpreted to make it seem like people have always organized themselves in more um, hierarchical and fixed relations of domination than they actually have. And then it's like so cool to hear um, what the new evidence and research have shown about um, how mostly people have lived and like not accepting people bossing them around essentially. And instead have had like very shifting ideas about like, oh, like during this season, um, we have this kind of leadership style and this season we do this other thing and like nobody has like a kind of permanent um, unimpeachable un um, irrevocable power over others so anyway I want to I want to recommend that but but what you're what you're just saying when we think about 
on a very simplistic level, I often am just like, the idea of the nation state is like a spell. It's just like a spell mm. render. It's like an illusion. And it's very similar to private property. It's like, why is this, like, why does your landlord own this apartment you're standing in? Like, what does that mean? Like, mm. what is, like, it's just, it's a made up thing with some papers. And we know that like people constantly have been dispossessed of their lands, like, all the time, forever and ever, including people who have the exact same paper that your landlord currently has, but also, of course, like, you know, larger processes of dispossession that are happening all over the world right now and have happened all over the world. Like, this is the idea of private property is silly. It's similar, like, you know, people talk about this anti-capitalist talk about, like, we're all standing around in the shoe factory making the shoes and, you know, they pay us as little as possible and to make as much profit as possible to make these shoes. And we look around at each other and we're like, wait, we're the ones who make the shoes. Like, the owner isn't even here. Like, this is our, these are our shoes. We made these shoes. You know, like, just this kind of, like, it's just an illusion that, like, that there are owners, that somebody else, that we all have to do what they say. And then, you know, it's also not a total illusion because it's enforced through policing and militaries. And so, but a lot of the enforcement we also do upon ourselves and one another and the kind of complexity of that and, like, Part of what this suggests, like we're told we live in a consensual system of domination because mm -hmm. we get to vote. And actually consent is part of it, but it's not the part they want us to look at. They want us to like practice our consent only by voting and, you know, doing the things that they've sent out as the way to, to um, you know, properly dissent if you don't like something that's happening. But when you have those moments, like for me, I remember the first moment where I really got it. I was at the inauguration. I was protesting the inauguration of George W. Bush the first time he was elected and the cops started arresting people and people writ like tore the cops we unarrested right like tore the cops off of the people mm -hmm. who were being arrested and i was like oh my god <laughs> you can just you can do that number right? them and stop them like oh yeah. my god like it just it was almost as if I, I i they were mystified for me once they started arresting you they just arrest you you know what i mean and i was like this there's no reason and this relates. I do think the idea of monopoly on violence is a has been useful for for me and for my students for thinking about. It's like the monopoly on legitimate violence. Like that, mm -hmm. the, the thing the state is, it's the thing that can kidnap you and put you in a car and put you in a cage, and that's not considered kidnapping and assault. And you know, and and if and whereas if I do that to you, it is right. Like that's like it's this false legitimacy. And and one of the ideas I've learned from some anarchists is like, how can we have an analysis of legitimate versus illegitimate authority? Like, I really think this is juicy. Like, mm -hmm. illegitimate authority is like, they can just arrest me because they are the cops and they're wearing the outfit and whatever, and they can target me because of my identities or because of my, my poverty or whatever. Um, that's illegitimate authority. And that's what we live under mostly is just like this person's older or they're white or they own something. And so they get to do this to you or they've been appointed by some Ill other illegitimate authority versus legitimate authority. They it's have like, credentials. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and versus like the legitimate authority, like, you know, um, B knows how to bake really well. And I've never baked bread before. As B is teaching me how to bake bread, I should like acknowledge this level of experience and follow along instead mm -hmm. of being like, I'm no B, we're doing it my way. That is based on nothing. Like, <laughs> like that there are legitimate ways for people to cultivate skills and share them. And that's like so different. Anyway, that idea is really helpful to me. Like the state is about um, uh, congealing systems mm -hmm. of illegitimate authority that are entirely about extraction. I mean, my, my fundamental belief is that the state is just like an extraction machine. It, it's, it's like, you can think about taxation in this way. It's like, it's like, we're going to tax you all. We're going to keep your, our boot on your neck. We're going to make sure that there's nowhere for you to live. That's free, that there's no way get your needs met that's free. So you must work these jobs and you must be taxed and then we can use that money to send, you know, so that more people in Gaza can be bombed. Like that's that whole process of extraction or so that more billionaires, so that we can like, you know, pave roads and, and set things up so that billionaires cannot pay taxes and have like the best possible place to do their terrible factory or their, you know, where they store their data or whatever. I think that 
the other thing that what you were saying brought up is like the relationship between like policy and regulation. Like, I, I mean, I think we talked about this before, but like a big a big way that people have a fantasy that the state will care for us is that it will regulate like pollution or that it'll regulate billionaires or that it'll like there's a kind of fantasy that like wise expert based regulation is what the state is for. And, you know, oh, sometimes it makes mistakes. And the reality is like the ways we are governed permit like maximum poisoning of us. Like the idea that it is to facilitate and protect us um, mm -hmm. is one of the, it's a liberal fantasy. I teach administrative law in these classes, you know, we're, so we're studying the administrative state. It's all about regulation. And it's like students come in and if they're Republicans, they think they're anti-regulation. And if they're Democrats, they think they're pro-regulation. Like that's mm. like the fantasy in our culture. And it's like, oh, no, 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 you guys. <laughs> like, you know, first of all, all of you just want to like regulate the fuck out of like poor people and immigrants. And like you all want to like, you know, facilitate the growth of wealth for um, the growth of imperialism for the wealthy. That's those both of those genders are the same. But also like the idea that like, um, that that misunderstanding. The final thing I'll say about this is like one of the things I think is really useful about the, um, what you were reading and that uh, I got a lot from Foucault is that stateness is also regimes of practices. Like it's it's both like that there is this border and they do have guns and like that's really real. That there's like violence backing up this illegitimate authority and also it's whole ways of being and thinking that we do participate in. Um, and so that we could act like that, even in our own meeting of our mutual aid project, we could be like, well, let's keep out drug users. Then we're inheriting the re a regime of practices from social welfare systems. And we're, in, you know, using the same kind of who are the deserving and the undeserving of these unhoused mm -hmm. people that we're supporting. Or we could also do it if we use majority rule in our meetings as our decision making process, right? Majority rule is this like very weird technology of domination that like I'm personally totally like not into, right? Like I'm like, what if we made decisions in our mutual aid project where we were like, we want to make sure every single person is heard here. So even though there's only one person who has kids here and there's only one person who's a walker and there's only one person who's hard of hearing, we're not going to make a decision that the, that that cuts those people out and that doesn't care about what they said, even though they're the only one that, or there's less people with that experience or only two Spanish speakers or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like we're not, we're, we, we, we are going to work together to find a solution to whatever problem or a, a way to a way to do our work that nobody's going to have to leave if we mm. do it this way. Like that's mm. our oh, that's called consensus decision making. It's it's the idea that actually it matters that we bring us all along as opposed to mimicking the state and taking on the methods of like you know this false voting thing we live under where it's like well sorry if white people outnumber black people in your state then we're just gonna you know like whatever the sort of narrative history of that has been um and the and the you know brutal reality also it covers over of course that that, that um all of those actual electoral systems benefit like very small minorities of extremely wealthy people and that's what they were designed to do but yeah but that you know i think that's juicy for us as people on the ground trying to think about immediate um action like how do we not like use um, statist models as our model for how to interact with one another. And I think people do that a lot. Even maybe like, well, we need a chair of this group. And we need, like just people just like set up a mini, you know, city government or whatever they're modeling it after instead of being like, how do we want to actually act for like making decisions together and sharing stuff and getting through crises? And that to me, a lot of also like women of color feminist analysis is a lot about that, like being careful of institutionalization like that and, mm -hmm. and also anarchist analysis and other anti-state analysis about like, how do we be together in ways that don't mimic um, this model that is designed for um, domination and extraction? Yeah, absolutely. And really, ultimately, it's not even mimicking, right? Like, because 
that kind of enforced abstract separation of like, this is the state and this is society. We are in society and the state supersedes us, right? Is itself like fiction. Ultimately, the state and society are kind of the same. And when we enact these things in our day-to-day lives, we are the state, right? We are enacting the state's preferred style of governance. And governance doesn't just apply to like describing the actions that a state officially takes or doesn't take, right? That's policy. That's what policy is. Then you have governance, which describes you know, the strategies and techniques uh, of power and implementation and organization and rule and domination that are disseminated not just by the state itself, but by actors with power within the state who take it upon themselves and also, you know, take on these same uh, modes of governance because these are official, right? These are the kind of best practices, terms of art kind of ways of doing it, right? And that is one of the ways that it sh- that you can kind of look at this false bordering between state and society, which and, and also state and economy, right? Which happens where you're like, we think, oh, if there's a problem in society or problem in economy, right? If we change and tweak the state as the state tells us to, right? Then that will impact the economy and society, you know, to correct it or to make it worse or to ignore it and entrench that status quo, right? And that's kind of like the realm of struggle that is sanctioned within our political economy officially. And that role and that kind of mode of of working relies on the idea that the state and society are separate, right? And that one must precede the other in terms of shift, right? And that again, it's it's a it's a mirage, but it's also it helps show sort of the real materiality of it, right? Because this is one, it helps like create the kind of idea of permanence and the perception of permanence is really crucial as you're talking about, you know, and and history is a huge part of this. And that's why we talk about so much history on this show. But, you know, politics isn't just about like making rules and enforcing them. It's like how the power of enforcement or the capacity to enforce is created, right? And and part of how that's done is through this, this separation of, of state and society. And ultimately, you know, this is why from an anarchist perspective, state power is irredeemable <laughs> and that its destruction must precede the creation of different modes of social and political relations, right? Because even though the state isn't like this fixed thing, even though we pretend like it's a fixed thing that's always in crisis and we need to like retrench, you know, some social or political, uh, you know, entitlement in order to like restore the state, right? Whether that's like we have to cut uh, Medicare and Social Security because the Medicare trust fund is going to run out in 10 years and then, you know, the national debt's going to fuck over future generations, right? That's, That's a claim that the state is static and fixed and that we need to make actions in terms of like, you know, creating um, further insecurity and instability (laughs) in order to restore the state to its original state, right? As if it had a fixed state to begin with that was Mm. good and that needs to be restored, right? And so that's part of that myth, right? That's also perpetuated by this, like, false border between state and society. And, you know, essentially, like, any in any action we take where we reproduce these modes of governance, as you're saying, Dean, like, we make the state, right? The state is a product of what's made and what's destroyed, which is a Ruthie Gilmore quote. And that sounds maybe cool or edgy or something, but it's actually like super literal, super literal, mm-hmm. right? Which is that like, if we're going to means test our mutual aid projects, right? We're no fucking better than a state Medicaid office. And we need to be really real about that, <laughs> right? Or and- if we 
if we have a, if we, you know, I think we, people talk about this a lot in our movements, like we reproduce policing and surveillance of each mm. other. We reproduce the ex exile. I mean, I'm also thinking about how, when you're talking about how like part of what's really profound about um, like anarchist anti-state tactics is that it is the upending of authority. Like I'm thinking about people like, you know, do tree sits to block um, pipelines or when people or like indigenous people all across, especially in, in Canada being like, sorry, this is our land. You can't come do this extraction project here. We don't recognize your authority. Like when people choose to just be like, I'm not following this rule. We are not following this rule. This is actually not a rule. This is a fiction and we're popping it. Like, and, you know, Peter Gelderlos's book, which I mentioned in my piece, um, The Solutions Are Already Here. It's really a book about those tactics and how many of those are proliferating around the world. People don't narrate those as like a different approach to ecological crisis. Like he's like, connect the dots. Like there's so much of this happening and we're being told instead to like, look over here at tech solutions and government solutions, but tons and tons and tons of people are resisting in these ways. And this is like where it's at. And like any of us can join this right now, whereas not all of us are going to join Congress or even become like you know, people who are doing respectability politics and lobbying and all that, like, but this, these immediate stops to these extractive projects, like these immediate efforts to support one another to survive these coming and current disasters, like this we can all do. And that for me feels like a really big, um, like, uh, way around the fear that if we were to look seriously at what's happening with ecological collapse, mm. we would stop acting or we would be frozen up and not do anything. And it would just be doom and gloom. And like, you know, this, the, the fear of apathy that I think people have when they're like, we shouldn't talk too much about how bad it is. And like, oh no, we should talk more about how bad it is because it directs us very actively to um, the immediate work that is also already happening. But of course it's not in the headlines in the same way that, you know, stuff governments do is. Mm. Absolutely. And honestly, that it's like that liminal space where I find fucking hope that feels really tangible, right, is is in like, as Jules says, don't underestimate an accurate description of a problem as like a, a really important and sort of centralizing way of driving your politics and your resistance. Right. And I really appreciate your work, Dean, because, you know, one of the things that's so important is that, you know, what you're talking about here is is sort of envisioning like how we can sort of build our work and build our movements without this kind of, um, you know, reification of the state one, but without the literal reproduction of the state in our own work and why some of the conditions of extraction that we're under, right, you know, contrasting that with a liberal and neoliberal framework of change, who's really seeking to sort of endorse and preserve the state, but advocate for its reform, right? Tweaking, reimagining in order to steer it differently, um, to bolster democracy or temper the excess of capitalism while leaving the state intact or power relations intact, political economy intact, or, or making it worse, right? Not smoothing out the rough edges, um, but making those rough edges more jagged, ma making the holes in the, you know, welfare state, quote, unquote, bigger, uh, more glaring, right? And and really, most mainstream politics is liberals and neoliberals arguing about reforming the state. Conservatives and the alt-right and fascists are also within the sense that they want to preserve the state and its existing power orientations with their preferred tweaks, of course. And 
what you're really calling for here is for folks to sort of step out and beyond that. And frankly, in that sort of like way of thinking and thinking about just the many different ways that we're able to resist when we move beyond the way that we're asked to resist politely and according to the kind of rules, right? And the ways that we can sort of see through this boundary enforcement between state and society that's really sort of false and perpetuates oppression, extraction, you know, this this sort of coercive framework that points us away from a real kind of true target on the horizon that's ours to set, right? And and sort of pushes us instead towards national interest, public interest, um, you know, compromise, quote unquote. And so you kind of have the resistance to the kind of third way politics that we've really been raised in, especially in the United States, where you have people like who have been in power for decades now, like Biden, right? And this kind of feeling of perpetual sameness and perpetuity of extraction and brutal violence and state repression mm. and surveillance and the idea that it's only going to ever get worse. And I really appreciate, you know, one, just your friendship and the work that you do and the ways that you push people to, you know, sit with these realities and really kind of like move um, in whatever ways feel best to resist, right? Because it's about sort of trusting the fact that it's not only the official channels that we need to rely on that I think produces like hope for me and makes me feel like some sort of, I think, protection from the spell of the state as you framed it, you know? Yeah, thank you so much for the conversation. I, I, yeah, I love talking about this stuff and I feel like, I hope that for people listening, it's, um, it's actually the opposite of disempowering to 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 comprehend, you know, to to spend more time really with how how hard the conditions are around ecological crisis. Like that, it's it's actually like this is this gives us chances to take immediate action and 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 make grounded decisions instead of waiting, you know, mm. um, which we just really can't. There's it's like it's way too late to wait anymore to to prepare ourselves for what is already happening and is coming. And I think like doing that together, feeling the the pleasure of doing that together, of trying together, the pleasure of upending authority, of not following rules, like taking bold action, like it's kind of what we have now of like what of care, like that's, that's all that's left, you know? Mm, absolutely. And, you know, I hope that folks go and read your whole piece. There's, you know, obviously like a whole bunch in there that, that we didn't even touch on today because I don't want to spoil your essay, Dean, but I appreciate you writing this and the jumping off point that it provided us today. And this has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much, B. And I think that's the perfect place to leave it for today. Dean's piece, again, is called Climate Disaster is Here and the State Will Never Save Us. That came out in November from In These Times. We'll link to that in the episode description. And patrons, again, we couldn't do any of this without you. Thank you so much for your support. If you'd like to also support the show and become a patron, you can do that at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. As a thank you, becoming a patron gets you access to our second weekly bonus episode, an entire back catalog of bonus episodes. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up copies of Health Communism and A Short History of Transmisogyny at your local bookstore, or request them at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. Patrons, we will catch you Monday in the patron feed. For everyone else, we will see you later next week. As always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. My heart can't beat, babe.